Hi, I'm Tej Singh, and welcome to Office Hours with Dorm Room Fund, where we interview some of the most successful people in startups, technology, and corporate America. Dorm Room Fund is a student-run venture capital firm backed by First Run Capital. We write seed checks of $20,000 into startups founded by fellow students. Since our founding in 2014, we've funded over 275 startups, which are now collectively worth over a billion dollars and have gone on to raise over $500 million in follow-on funding from Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Excel, and others. To pitch us, go to dormroomfund.com. Enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Tate Singh, and I'm interviewing Jen Batchelor, the co-founder and CEO of Kin. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tej. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah to be precise, on the coast of the Red Sea. My dad was working there as an aircraft mechanic, and I spent a decade of my life out there. And your mom was a diamond, uh, desert diamond jeweler. What was that like? She was. Oh my gosh. I mean, between him as a bootlegger and her as a diamond dealer, this was, it was like Bonnie and Clyde almost. No, it was fun. You know, women didn't have as many opportunities as uh, they perhaps do now. And so she met a gem uh, distributor that, you know, helped her to learn the trade. And she really made it more of a, a social experience for her friends where she would host these long, drawn out teas and breakfasts and she would pawn her jewels and you know it was really just more of a fun activity for them than it was a serious endeavor what was the coolest gem you saw honestly the the desert diamonds were pretty like fascinating so they were in that that same family of the the cubic zirconium right so it was a naturally occurring mineral in the desert and they had so many incredible just shapes and colors and prisms and so just seeing them in the raw was really a, a beautiful sight so you obviously got into the beverage industry early. So you're, can you talk about how your dad made uh, Siddiqui? Is that how you say it in the family's yeah. bathtub? Yeah. So Siddiqui is essentially a, a Bedouin tradition. It's a desert moonshine of sorts. And my dad was actually out in Saudi a couple of years before we made it out there, my mom and I. And he had already sort of turned the entire house into his, you know, pub and lab. And the bathrooms, of course, were a great place to store a brewery and tuck it away. And so the the Siddiqui had a very uh, interesting process where he would kind of like cook down sugar and that had a really pervasive sort of smell that would inhabit the house for a few days and sort of torture everyone. It just kind of smelled like burnt tar. And then he would take the the base of that and ferment it essentially over time and it would develop into a, a grain alcohol. What's your earliest memory growing up? Oh, goodness. Actually, my earliest memory wasn't in Saudi at all, but it was in another desert in the Grand Canyon. And it was my first time meeting a tarantula. It actually hit my hand. And it was about the size of my hand at that time. I was maybe three, all of three years old. And I vividly remember seeing that little hairy beast and freaking out. So that's my earliest memory. <laughs> the torment. Did you have any siblings growing up? I didn't. No, I was an only child. So my parents had me and they were 17 years old. And didn't have another kid until they were 32. So my brother and I are are a good, you know, 15 years difference. So you grew up in Miami. How'd you get there? So my, my parents actually met in Miami when they were 13 in middle school and ended up, you know, falling in love and having me just outside of, of high school. My dad went into the Air Force, actually. So I only lived in Miami for a year. I was born there. 
we transferred actually to Nellis Air Force Base in, in Las Vegas, just outside of Vegas. And my mom's family was living in Miami. So when uh, my mom decided that the Air Force wife life was not for her and that her 18-year-old husband was too immature, she decided we would move back to Miami and live with my grandmother. And I was sort of lived there amongst, you know, 12 incredible women, our little coven of my mom's sisters and my aunts, my grandmother and their best friends from high school. And we all sort of took care of each other. And we did that for five years. And that was amazing. I loved Miami, the the culture, the, the family energy, the sisterhood. And my parents actually got back together when I was seven. So that's where the Miami saga sort of ended. And then I ended up moving there actually after college as well. Speaking of family, who are your favorite relatives? Oh, my grandmother's queen. <laughs> Any she's, interesting stories? She's the best. I think she just always was this light. She still is with us, thank God. And she's just very much the fashionista. She's sort of unapologetic about how she shows up in the world. And I think that taught me and my cousins especially about grace, but also about strength and that you can be sort of sassy and nurturing at the same time, which is not something I... I learned or saw again in the wild. I feel very lucky and fortunate that I was raised sort of in that environment where I could not be afraid of my femininity and and also be eccentric and be in my power. What were you like as a kid? Did you get in trouble a lot? No. Oh my gosh. I was the only baby and I think I had a lot of pressure. My mom was the the, the youngest in the, in the lineage and so she was sort of like the wild child. And I think by nature, I was her counterpart. I was the, the yin to her yang. And I, I certainly was extremely buttoned up. You know, I was like out of the womb. I was 35 years old. And I would tell her what time to come home. And I would tell her to brush her teeth. And, you know, I was very much the boss uh, of her. And my grandmother was the matriarch. And so that was sort of our dynamic. I read, I had my nose in a book at two years old. I, I was always reading. would rather do that than watch TV. Any favorite um, such a, uh, authors such a or books? You know, I read uh, The Little Prince a lot as a child, The Giving Tree. And I sort of immersed myself in fantasy, but I also loved I think I was always drawn naturally to books that had that were deeply rooted in philosophy and allowed me to think about the world in different ways. So talk about high school and college. Where'd you go to college? So high school was basically a running saga, right? So in, in Saudi, we, we all are part of the international uh, school program. So it's essentially a hybrid of British curriculum and American. When I was living there, you couldn't even graduate quote unquote, from in the traditional sense from high school. So we actually ended school at uh, grade 11, year 11, and everyone would typically go off to prep school before they would go into university. And that was about the year that my mom actually got pregnant. And so I ended up having to be the new girl, essentially, in a new country a senior year. And so that taught me a lot about tenacity and, and how to own my own and and really adapt. And so, so yeah, high school was a blast though. It was, I mean, it was the same kids, the same group of folks from, from middle school and elementary school. And so it was, you know, a decade of, of working and building and dreaming with the same people. And it was a real blessing. I didn't appreciate this until I moved back to the U.S., but the idea that we didn't have bullying, we didn't have cliques, you know, we were all, a team of 30 that had to just stick together and of course there was like infighting and weirdness and boyfriends and weird hormonal things that happened as they naturally do at those at that state that uh, stage of, of life but for the most part it was very familial which I always appreciated. 
Talk about the first job you had at Ben and Bob's Grocery in Florida and then the story of the woman looking for matzah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So my first ever job was at a what I thought originally was a florist, but what ended up being actually a gourmet grocer. Uh, And I walked in there and I was like, I want to deal in flowers. And he's like, you're just getting here. You're going to be bagging groceries, lady. So I started there at Ben and Bob's. My manager, Mike, was a comedian I mean he would get up on the cash register and, and tell jokes all day long and so it was pure entertainment for me it's the first time I ever handled money which is a great lesson and my best friend Heather was working the bakery so I was always aspired to work in the bakery but I had to work my way up uh, and so I was uh, one day got promoted from bagging groceries because the the back stockist was out sick and so I was allowed to touch the mozzarella that came in fresh from Italy and wow, my job oh yeah so this is gourmet I mean Dan Marino shopped here so everything was top of the line 99.9% of everything was imported and um, so I was charged with getting this big you know 50 gallon bucket of mozzarella you know with precision and gloves on and take each ball out weigh it and put it in these little plastic bins and so I was just so proud of myself that I was able to put these you know mozzarella balls in the precise order with the right amount of water weigh them price them sticker them and here they were going off to the shelves and I just took so much pride in that and so as I finished putting up my little mozzarella plastic bin tower in its precise place in the cold case I turn around and I find myself greeting this customer and as a bagger you have some banter with customers but really not enough to be useful and in this case I found myself in a position where I could direct this lady to my mozzarella tower after she asked me excuse me uh where's the matzah I said oh the matzah matzah is what you want matzah is what I got for you lady come with me and I took her to the mozzarella balls and of course she was asking for matzah unleavened bread for her Jewish traditional dinner and I had no idea about Jewish culture having grown up in Saudi Arabia and she was outraged she could not believe that I would make fun of her which of course I I had no intention of doing and certainly felt terrible for it and and Mike was just livid but of course he, he made a mockery of me and an example of me made me stand outside the the front doors and he's like you're on the outside looking in bachelor <laughs> one more incident like this and you're fired it's <laughs> a nice accent or a, a vo- voiceover yeah so talk about how you were working as a consultant in the hospitality industry and saw that you know guests were booking morning gym classes but were too hungover t- to attend and then how that led to kin yeah so um again just i i always say about my career path that it was just a series of happy accidents and saying yes to to opportunities and I think you know when I got to this place of you know moving away from a traditional career in media and advertising I I realized that I really wanted to solve for a problem that I knew intimately well and that was this sort of you know this trouble with traveling and trying to stay well and maintain a routine you know while while on the go and having built something really special and something that you're seeing progress in at home and not being able to to really keep that up while you're while you're on the go and so it was less of a consultancy and more of this you know 360 
service-oriented startup that actually developed technologies. We were creating products and experiences for guests that were looking to to do just that, to really discover new wellness products and experience something new and, and something culturally relevant, right? Like if you're coming to New York from Boise, Idaho, you're curious about who's doing what in New York. What What's up with this New York marathon life? And I've never tried Pilates before. And especially back in you know 2014, 2013, when we started that company, it was a bit of a novelty and, and wellness was sort of being aligned and you know as as impactful culturally as fashion was so there's a lot of trends around modalities there were trends around ingredients and we wanted to sort of be the the cultural attache uh, and the wellness concierge extension of the hotel experience and so it was more about designing for the guest. I took a lot of inspiration from IDEO as an example and and how uh, that firm thought very intrinsically and intuitively about human design and how the end user would fully benefit and be able to engage with that type of service. And so it was a joy. It was, it was certainly an art of triangulation and creating the right program for that type of traveler. And, and I think I, I eventually, you know, three years in thought, well, by now, this technology, the, the scalable element of this of this venture would have had its learnings. We would have all the data we need to really create something that was scalable. And what we found was that guests were more interested in connecting with one another. And they were, you know, over-indexing on classes and, you know, trial of, you know, the different products that they wanted to, to they were excited about putting to use while they were traveling. And so... That was a funny insight because I realized, wow, so I really need to double down on the thing that is probably less scalable, but more engaging. And if I pay attention, will allow me to, to really understand what the guest's needs are. When I had a chance to chat with these guests, I realized that for the most part, they wanted to, even before they arrived at the hotel, they were subscribing to and opting in for some of these wellness experiences. But as soon as they walked into the hotel, they were sort of set up for failure. It was like, oh, welcome, Tish. Thank you for coming to this XYZ hotel. Uh, white or red, sir? And you're like, it's 1030 in the morning. <laughs> I don't want white or red. I want coffee or green juice or something that's going to help me hydrate after a long flight and, you know, get to my next meeting. So hotel culture was still sort of aiding and abetting this myth that just by the virtue of being at a hotel, you were on vacation. Of course, people that travel to New York know that's not the case. And so for me, it was, okay, well, how do I help people have their cake and drink it too and it's still funny, live their best too. life? Yeah. <laughs> so that was sort of the the big, you know, I would say that was the boot camp that allowed me to, to devise a plan that would allow me to create a product that was um, really servicing that type of customer and could scale and reach more people and inspire more people through it. Can you quickly touch on the dry, move, dry movement and this whole trend of Gen Z and millennials drinking less and how that's really um, kind of lifted your business? Yeah, it's fascinating because if you look at millennials and Gen Z, 10 years ago, we were just getting started in our uh, journey of, of alcohol consumption. And if you look at the data that the World Health Organization just recently released, you'll realize that that is also the time where the world was starting to drink less. So if you look at the last decade of data that we have available to us, you realize that 10% of drinkers worldwide have disappeared. So where is that market share going? What's happening with the world and the, and the culture of the world that is leading us to choose alcohol less or not at all? 
and and what the data shows is that we're becoming way more educated we're becoming well informed around the ingredients that uh, we put in our body and what that's actually doing and we're becoming more con- more performance conscious and so alcohol simply does not fit into that equation of wanting to live our best lives being able to show up uh, fully in our presence and our power for our causes for our work for our side hustles and even for our play people are just getting smarter overall about how we uh, get the boast of uh, the best of both worlds rather in in our life and work and dreaming experiences so let's wrap up with some quick rapid fire questions if you could live anywhere in the world for a year where would it be Mm. you know i'm obsessed with bordeaux right now it's it's what paris was back in hemingway's and you know gertrude stein's day right there are a lot of artists flocking to bordeaux i'm a bookworm as i mentioned and there's just a really rich literature culture there there's a lot of like little book museums and and houses dedicated to authors it just there's just goth i mean there's just so much uh rich history there and and youth and energy and so i would definitely live there for a year if you could have an unlimited supply of anything for the rest of your life what would it be sushi scotch tape this one's weird um the greeks love windex and i somehow and the Cubans love Lysol. And somehow I took both of those things and found a, an affinity and an obsession, if you will, with Neosporin. I like bringing Neosporin everywhere with me. I think it's because I travel all the time. And like whatever happens, if I get a nick, if I have like a headache, I mean, it's like my magic elixir. I would have a lifetime supply of Neosporin. <laughs> People are like, it doesn't work for those things that you're saying, but, but it does. <laughs> if you could live in any sitcom, which would it be? Oh, gosh. I would definitely live in Friends. I'm a Friendsaholic. I know every single word to every episode. I know exactly the character that I would play. So, yeah. Friends. Have you watched Jennifer Aniston, Aniston in The Morning Show? No. Is it good? I love the show, yeah. Oh, I have to watch it. Of course, she's winning all the awards for it, so I'm super intrigued. What is something you can do better than anyone else you know? Pancakes. Make pancakes. What's the funniest thing you did as a kid that your parents still talk about to this day? Oh my gosh, I had a total meltdown one Christmas. My parents got me a Corvette, a Barbie Corvette. It was the first time that they had ever released one. It was a one, toy, right? A yeah, toy, yeah. yeah. It had the loudest motor I'd ever heard. And as soon as they put me in there, and they have home video of this, I had this little bow and my Christmas jammies on, and I'm in the Corvette, and they're like, "Go, girl! You look great!" You know, <laughs> like every little girl's dream that Christmas. And I got in and I was just in hysterics. I was like, no, put me back in my my home library. This is not for me. I'm not the, the fast girl in the cool car. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Tish, this was so much fun. I really appreciate you having me.